Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Mean O-Line Media presents Business of the Beat. Hi, I'm Kendra Bracken Ferguson, and I am a founder, brand builder, entrepreneur, and believe in the mantra, Carpe Diem. I created this podcast, Business of the Beat, through my own experience as a beauty executive to talk about, tell stories, and highlight the business of beauty through conversations with beauty and wellness entrepreneurs, intrapreneurs, helping to diversify the industry. This week on Business of the Beat. When I first started, I was that person where you come in and change it all. Let's flip the tables. I don't understand. Like, we've been talking about this. Like, But that's not what wins people over. And that's not how you make change impactful and sustainable. Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Kendra Bracken-Ferguson. And welcome to Business of the Beat. Today's guest is the first Senior Director of Anti-Racism and Racial Equity at Diva Curl and co-founder of Nash and Pino, Alicia Williams. But before we get started, don't forget to follow, rate, and subscribe to Business of the Beat on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You don't want to miss an episode, and we love to hear from you. All right, everyone, before making waves in the hair care industry, Alicia Williams spent a decade in nonprofit roles that allowed her to share her passion for DEI with students and promote change in the education sector. She eventually transitions to the corporate sector and found her niche at Converse headquarters. After leaving an imprint on one of the world's most iconic brands, she sought further leadership roles to directly improve employees' work experiences and give them a sense of belonging. That's how Alicia became the first senior director of anti-racism and racial equity at Diva Curl, where she internally leads strategy and ensures anti-racism touches all aspects of the brand and externally works to eradicate racism across the hair industry. Alicia, welcome to Business of the Beat. I am thrilled to have you on the show today. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Oh my goodness, me too. I just, there's so much I want to talk to you about. So let me jump in. I want to start with a congratulations. So you were named 2023 Black Executives Leading the Beauty Industry by Essence. And it is a phenomenal list of colleagues and people there. So congratulations for the the imprint and the mark that you're making. Well, thank you so much. That was um, such a great moment for, you know, for me, like growing up reading Essence magazine, I'm sure everybody who was listed felt the same way. It's, you know, just a beautiful moment to be a part of something that's been a part of my life and, you know, childhood growing up for so long. Um, and, you know, just speaks to the impactful work that we're all trying to do in this space for for people who look like us. Well, it's it's so funny because I feel the same way. I was in the 2020 um, list of Black female executives in the beauty industry. Mm-hmm. And the connecting piece is that when we were on set for the shoot, 
I met a woman, Celessa Baker, who works at Sephora. Celessa is the one who said to me, oh my goodness, have you ever thought about doing a podcast? I want to introduce you to Ken Johnson, who has Me Don't Lie Media, which is an all-Black podcast network. And I was like, I don't know about doing a podcast. And of course, we're like three seasons later, 120-something episodes. But mm-hmm. the connectivity of being with my peers, being on that shoot, like, you know, in divine order, Celeste and I would have met in some other place, but it wouldn't have been ordered to lead to the podcast and being here with you today. And so it is such a special recognition, but it's also the relationships that you meet through it that I think are what makes the whole thing like really impactful. Yeah, I, yep, I agree with that. Uh, I know uh, one of the years before Erica Roberson, um, she and I have worked together with the Texture Education Collective. And so just, you know, the same, you know, it's like you're you're with the circle of people that are, you know, doing this impactful work and you, you know, may or may not come across them, you know, later on, but it is, it's great to to see it and it makes you not feel so alone because a lot of times these spaces, you are the only one. So it's beautiful. Yes. I love it. I'm like, keep going, Essence. Thank you. (laughs) So it's interesting that you talk about these spaces and how, you know, it may not, we may not have that opportunity. And it's interesting for you because you didn't even start in the beauty industry, which I love. You started in nonprofit sector and have had so much experience and then even going into retail and footwear and apparel. So talk about your experience and kind of the transition into beauty. So my experience, one is just my passion for, you know, DEI work. I, I'll do it wherever it is. And that's what it is. My passion for people, my passion for creating spaces for black and brown folks um, to succeed, you know, specifically in corporate America. And I guess like for the duration of this, when I'm talking about black and brown people, I'm talking about, of course, you know, men and women, you know, veterans, the LGBTQ plus community, people with disabilities. So just putting that out there because it's a lot to say every time, but you know, inclusive of everyone in these spaces. But how I started out with this work is working with underserved youth. I tutored when I was in college um, at the University of Florida, Go Gators. And while I was there, I was like, oh, I can save the world. You know, you can work with these kids and do this, right? You know, that, (laughs) you know, just wide eyed, like I could do it all. So my first job, I'm a teacher at an alternative school and it was an eye-opening experience. And I wish everybody could have that same experience because we talk about opportunities that exist. And I think sometimes people don't realize all of the challenges and hurdles that also exist alongside those opportunities that seem to be accessible to everyone. Um, From there, um, I actually, I was like, you know, this a lot, went to law school, thought that was my calling. It was not. Um, and so pivoting, the only thing that like there, of course, met some great folks, met my husband while I was here. So that, <laughs> oh, I okay, we'll take that. Yeah, that was the pit stop. So, you know, after that, I was like, okay, going back to what I know, I started working in nonprofit again, you know, after school programming, underserved youth. And it's, you know, it's just, it's, it's a lot, it's a labor of love. <laughs> it's a, you know, a lot of work. Um, I did that, you know, for about four years. And then I was like, okay, I'm done. You know, you're not, you're wearing so many hats. Um, Once again, it's a labor of love. So you don't necessarily have the salary to match all the work and the hours that you're putting in on the weekend, you know, outside of that. And so when we relocated to Boston, uh, my husband had an opportunity and we relocated there and I was like, I'm just going to work in corporate. 
And it just goes to show that when something is your calling or something is meant for you, you're not going to be able to stop thinking about it or wanting to do it. So while we were there, I was actually, I worked in supply chain. I still have a passion for it. It actually helped, you know, with my business and everything, just having that understanding of how things work. But there was still something where it's like, how do I give back? How do I support people? Um, how do I make a difference in what your experience is like, you know, while we're in these corporate spaces? And from there, you know, started the Converse Diversity Network alongside actually, you know, my husband and um, another coworker of ours, Arthi, and all of us do DNI work now. And so that's how I got started in this. Um, I was just hungry to be able to do it wherever. So I've done it in healthcare, um, the fast casual food industry, uh, footwear, you know, now beauty. And I just, I love it. They're, different nuances, no matter what industry it is, but the core of it is how do we move people forward? How do we advocate for people? And how do we just create, people spend a lot of time at work. Like how do we create better spaces for them while they're here? So, um, so yeah, that's how I was able to transition. Wow. I I love how you talk about like helping people, right. And advocating for people because we, need a voice as people, whether Mm -hmm. it's in a corporate environment, whether this is just in day-to-day life. When we think about what's coming down from the government and all of the changes that are being made with affirmative action and how that's going to impact us and this division. Mm -hmm. And at the center of it all are people. And we're all people at the end of the day. And I like how you make sure to encompass all of it from Mm -hmm. LGBTQIA to disability, because we sometimes get caught in this one piece of what DE&I means. And Mm -hmm. we lose sight of the full breadth of what it really represents. And Mm -hmm. so one of the things I, I, as you were talking, I was really interested in, you're right, it's healthcare, it's footwear, it's beauty at the core, it's advocating for people. Mm -hmm. But as you've navigated across the industries, What are you seeing that's different and nuanced, especially coming out of a time like 2020? Because you've been in it for a long time. So what's been the evolution of it that you've seen and how has that been articulated in different industries? Hmm. I would say the evolution of, of this work. One, I think, obviously, you know, God bless us all with the, you know, murder of George Floyd. We saw in 2020, there's this, you know, hunger for or this, you know, awareness, which is frustrating for, you know, black, brown people who have seen these issues, um, you know, time and time again. You read articles from the 80s, the 70s. People are ta- have been talking about these same topics for, you know, decades now. And so I would say what has changed is there's an awareness piece, maybe for folks that didn't know that DEI was necessary in these environments, because there's an assumption that, oh, you're here, it should be fine. We all have the same opportunities. And that's absolutely not the case, as we know. And honestly, I would say it's more so it's somewhat industry, of course, like if we're talking about tech, right, Um, the lack of diversity in those types of spaces. But it's also, I would say, location based as well. Um, when we're one of the companies that I work for, you know, you're if you're more focused on like, you know, the Midwest, you're not necessarily going to find maybe the same amounts or maybe amounts of diversity or even the the push for it to be there because it's not necessarily your consumer. Um, also working, you know, in healthcare, it was faith based. So that nuance there is going to be how do we keep in alignment with who we are as a brand and as an organization, as well as push and ask for these things. So the nuances kind of exist. What I've seen is going to be location-based. It's also going to be 
what is what is their ethos? How does that brand function? And within that, how do you advocate? So that's what my job is from a strategy perspective. So tell me the rules, what are the parameters, and how do I advocate for people within this, regardless of what the industry is? Um, and so that's kind of been the fun part of you know the jobs that I've had, where it's like you know there's a lot of similarities that you see. You know we're talking about lack of diversity in leadership, the lack of diversity, you know, to create succession plans. However what are the parameters that we can work within in order to make change? And that's ultimately what I'm doing in each of these spaces. Wow. It is, it's so powerful. And it's interesting because I have been exposed to all of these chief diversity officers at different companies. Like I was just on a panel and can with two, and we've been talking about the role of a chief diversity officer, how you, um, are educated in that role because we went through this point where even I was getting called. I'm like, do, do you even know who I am? I like, I don't understand. Like everybody I was talking to was either one, like we need a chief diversity officer or we need someone thinking about DE&I. And so they're going to add it to my job. It's like a committee and now I'm going to run it. Then you have people who are like, I just happen to be the only one. So now I'm going to take, I'm not going to do my job anymore. I'm now going to be the head of DEI, right? Because I was black, not encompassing all of the different things that you're talking about or the education to actually have that job. And then we have this interesting thing where I'm talking to people and they're like, DEI jobs are getting cut or DEI jobs are being changed. So it's an interesting kind of trifecta of, I had to add this, but I didn't get more money. Oh, I was promoted to this. I may not be the right person, but I'm the only one. And now they've created this, but now we're starting to lose our jobs. So what are you seeing in terms of that paradigm of DEI and how do you advocate even for the role of DEI? Because you're the first one to have this position at mm-hmm. your company. Yes, I would say, well, that's absolutely true and still stands. Um, what I have done in the past, especially when I know other, you know, black or brown people have been tapped on the shoulder to help with things, I'll have that conversation on the side. Like, is this something that you want to do? Because I, this is DNI work while part of it is having a lived experience that it pushes you closer to the work. You understand the nuances of it. There's still a passion and a strategy for it. It's emotionally taxing to talk about this stuff all the time. Um, it's exhausting um, because you're putting in so much effort. You care so much because, you know, it impacts me. It impacts your friends and all these things. But, you know, you can only sometimes make not as much change as you would like to. So what I've done in the past, some folks are tapped in. If you don't want to do this, you don't have to. Um, just because you are a person of color. And I also talk to people about different ways you can advocate for DEI from wherever it is that you sit. You don't have to have this title to do that because in actuality, it has to sit outside of, you know, a DNI person or a DNI team, right? So it, it has to be the culture of the company. So how do you have that skill set there with organizations that are letting DNI people go? Those are tough business decisions. And I think it also goes to show how things are prioritized, unfortunately. Because while there's so much data on, you know, Gen Z and what folks are looking for and how they prioritize um, companies that, you know, basically put their money where their mouth is, there's still people are expecting numbers at the end of the day. And it's unfortunate to to have that perspective. 
And, you know, when folks are tapped on the shoulder to, you know, to be asked, you know, can they do this? You know, I think that's a personal judgment call. You have to say, is this the right thing for me? Can I do this work? Can I push it forward to where it needs to go? Because it's absolutely more, like I said, than just being, you know, a Black person and and putting on this hat. But you saw it time and time again. You saw all the title shifts on LinkedIn and it's like, okay, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Yeah. So I would say that you have to advocate for yourself and know that it's okay to push back. But, But it's hard. And I think that's what the intersectionality is. When we are typically not a majority in a space, you feel this pressure to advocate on behalf of your community. And when somebody asks you something like that, it feels like you're saying no to the people in your community. And so I think that's why you see all of those things, why why you see those transitions. It's because of that. Um, and it, it's unfortunate. And especially when folks are doing this work and not getting paid for it. So Well, because it's real work. And it's interesting because mm-hmm. you have the flip side of the people who are like, I feel pressured to advocate. Am I letting down my mm-hmm. whole community? Mm-hmm. And then you have, I've also talked to, you know, people of color and organizations where they're the only one and they're scared to advocate for things that are diverse led initiatives, opportunities, programs, because they're like, I'm going to get pigeonholed and I'm going to be left out of things or I'm not going to be included. Mm -hmm. And it is a really dynamic conversation to have and to sit in a company where it's not valued. And I think one of the things that I've just been so impressed with Ziva Curl and as I've shared, I have been exposed to the brand for a long time and the brand mm-hmm. is one of the best. It is it, it truly award-winning. And you are the first senior director of anti-racism and racial equity. Yeah. And so when mm-hmm. I think about these stories of people who were getting tapped or who were scared to speak up, your background, your career, has been leading to this, it's the culmination of all the different things. And like you said, it's, I'm here to advocate for people and the industry may be different. Mm -hmm. So everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Talk about how that even came about for you to take this role <laughs> and the fact that Diva Curl had to, they have to not only walk it, they have to say it, they have to live it because they have created an ecosystem for you to thrive. Right. Um, wow. That's, um, it, (laughs) it's a lot, but I will say, obviously this work was, it was in the beginning stages of taking place prior to my arrival, right? That's how my position was created. What happened prior to my arrival goes to show when people have true empathy, when you're really seeking to understand and understanding that you need somebody in this role to lead this work. So all of these things, like I said, were taking place with the leadership team prior to my arrival. Once I got there, of course, like one, it was exciting to see it. Uh, with this work, with DNI, depending on the organization, there's a lot of coded language. And what impressed me the most, it was being able to talk about white supremacy. It was being able to say the words of what we're trying to target. Because you, you know how Ayanna's like, you got to call a thing a thing. It's like, if you don't call it that, how are we fixing it? So um, I think that was one of the 
the draws to, you know, taking this role. It's and it's clear on who it's for. It's clear on what we're doing. And so that was the draw there. Of course, there's a lot of pressure with any of these works or always being the first or being, you know, a black person in any of these roles. It's like, you know, you want to make sure you're doing it well. How do I perfect this? How do I um, create space for folks? But it is, um, you know, I'm thankful that I get to do this work and just the team, you know, all around that I get to work with because it, it doesn't, you know, it sits with me, but the culture of the organization truly believes in this work. And that's how I'm able to get things done because I don't have to convince people on the importance of it. Well, that's everything, right? Yeah. It's the culture mm-hmm. of the organization. And mm-hmm. that is, you can't sit in a silo and be creating the strategy, even with the best intention. Like, I love that. Like it is the true empathy of the organization at the leadership because the organization is made up of the people who want to run it and then the people who work in it. And mm-hmm. so the entire culture has to be locked up with you or you're sitting in a silo talking about these terms, talking about what's happening, but then you also can't be in the day-to-day operational piece, especially at a company your size mm-hmm. to ensure So how do brands figure out, because for some of these companies, they've thought it, but it's not as ingrained in the culture as it should be. And it takes time. You don't just wake up and say, here is our director of anti-racism and racial equity and the whole company is cheering and applauding, but there's a cultural shift. So what advice can you give? Because you've worked at huge organizations. And and I'll say this, when you think about Converse, you automatically think of culture. Right. Mm-hmm. You are, it's all, it's already there, but right. not in this lens. Mm-hmm. So talk about this. I, I love this. <laughs> so I, when, when you're coming in and you're trying to do this culture shift, of course, you're going to start with like early adopters, right? Just who are the people that are advocating it? Who for this work already? Who are the folks who are sitting on the ERGs, on the committees that, that they have there? So how do you lean into those people? Learn the culture because what you don't want to do is come in and either change everything around or not have a good understanding of what some of the challenges are at the organization or what some of the hangups are with this organization. What can you say? What can't you say? So I think that's my first piece of advice is how do you go in? Because at the end of the day, it's not about being heard or calling out things. It's how do you win? How do you make a change? Um, and that's that's how I, I'm able to lead because uh, there are a lot of times that I've had to talk to somebody about this um, where I think they were frustrated and didn't think that I felt the same way as them about you know how we approach our strategy. And when I first started, I was that person where you come in and change it all. Let's flip the tables. I don't understand. Like we've been talking about this, like, but that's not what wins people over. And that's not how you make change impactful and sustainable. And so what I, I have a lot of patience for people. I used to work with kids. I have a lot of patience. So it's, yes. <laughs> so it's like, how do we get those early adopters on? How do we understand the culture? And then how do we start to make it seem easy for people to adopt these transitions because that's what a lot of it is it's fear of saying the wrong thing it's fear of not knowing how and when you create a space for people to be able to come to you and ask questions and say i want to do this because i would say honestly most of the people at organizations you have like 10 percent on one side that already get it 10 percent that don't want to do it and will not but the rest of the folks they 
you they just need a skill set like just just show them how to do it and they will so um and so that's the next piece like how do you make it attainable for the culture and what are those things that will help push it forward um and so it just like with any skill set once you show people how it can be done you know now you start to see that culture shift and now you start to see people talking about it and asking those questions when they're having meetings when they're running a campaign when they're selecting models um when they're selecting curl types skin tones these things become regular conversations when you give people the language to use, you know, as you're trying to shift the culture of an organization. Well, and it's so interesting because it's the 80-20 rule, no matter where you go. Yeah. Like 10% get it, 10% are knowing, 80% are like, girl, just tell me what you need me to do. I'm down for it. Like in every industry, 80-20 exists. And I think it's really interesting because so much of it goes back to education, mm-hmm. right? And so if you haven't had a diverse group of people coming together to work in an organization, then the tools that you need, the language is absent. And mm-hmm. so that's where the first step is, how do we diversify the organization so that the, the thinking is different, How do we navigate this cultural lens to your point? And it is because at the end of the day, we have to win. Mm -hmm. And so how do we make sure that we are integrating, infiltrating in the way that makes people feel safe and included so that they can understand and embrace? Mm -hmm. And even down to the nuance, if it's just the tools, Mm -hmm. like if we can give you the tools and the language and for that 80% that want it, we're going to make sure you have it so that then you can navigate the 10% that are like, oh, no, 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 no. That's <laughs> but honestly, you don't even focus on that 10%. I think when you, when I first started, you, I would, but it's, if you do, you get lost in that and you can't focus on the 10% because they, they're either going to leave as the culture changes or they're going to just not do it and that's it. And that's okay, right? Like everybody is not gonna pick up the skill set. So I think when you focus on the majority of the folks who want to see change happen, that's where you find your success. That's where you find your win. Oh, I love that. And I also, you have this philosophy. I love your philosophy about DNI work. And one of the things you summed it up in kind of three words. And as we're talking, I'm like, oh yes, I see it. You said intentionality, exposure and opportunity. And as you went through even navigating the culture shift, Mm -hmm. I'm immediately like, wow, there's the intention, there's the exposure, and there's the opportunity. Mm -hmm. So when you think about these words, this is your philosophy, how do they interconnect (laughs) and why are they so crucial for creating this, the cultural change? Those three words are crucial and what I live by when I'm doing this work, because especially the intentionality piece, because it doesn't just happen, right? Racism didn't just happen. There was intentionality behind it. You know, systemic racism didn't just happen. And so when we have things that have been upheld, we have to have intentionality to change the existence of it. And so DEI deserves that intentionality. And there's not another part of a business that doesn't lead with intentionality. Nobody just happens to see what sales are going to be. Nobody just happens to see, um, you know, what the creative director is going to do. There's intentionality behind it. There's a plan, there's a strategy. And in order to, you know, overturn a lot of the things that have been done to marginalized groups, there has to be intentionality behind it to show the, the people that you care and that you're serious about it. And that there's a goal at the end. We're not just 
putting this person in this role and, oh, let's see what happens. Let's not give them any money, any resources. Let's see. Of course they're going to fail. So, um, <laughs> it's like, yeah. So, um, you know, so that's, you know, really important to me when we're talking about exposure. Um, that's a personal one. You know, what I've, you know, experienced personally and what I've seen, you know, for black and brown people, a lot of times when you don't know what's out there, you don't know that you can strive to achieve it when you don't have access to those things. And so how do we create, you know, opportunities for, you know, for younger folks and, you know, even people our age, you know, how do you create space for people to see what's out there so you know that you can achieve it and that it's attainable to you? Um, I think it's it helps with your mindset, having a mindset shift. And it also helps with just, like I said, just pushing you to what can I be? How can I contribute my talents in this space? And with opportunity, once again, something else that I've experienced, when people cannot connect with you, they don't see your value. And that's what a lot of this is, even with DNI work, it's people not being able to see their value beyond, oh, okay, you know, she's nice in the hallway. Like, you know, no, like some, I can, I have a lot to offer. Like, I'll never forget telling a, a leader about a project that I was working on and just how dismissive, you know, he, he was about it. And he's like, oh, well, you know, maybe you can do a PowerPoint. It was like a PowerPoint. Like, what was the correlation there? Like, I'm telling you about all of these initiatives that I'm working on. And you summarized what my impact and opportunities could be to a PowerPoint presentation as like, okay, but yeah. So mm -hmm. Girl, I'm like, okay, we're, right. we're done. Yes. So, yeah, right. So with opportunity, what I'm speaking to is, do you see potential in people? And another thing as a leader, your job is, yes, you're leading strategy, but how do you coach the next generation of people? You're not going to be there forever. So how do you how do you coach them? How do you provide them the tools and not just put people in roles so they can fail, but how do you provide them the tools so they can actually succeed because they have the intangibles? You can learn all of the information that's, you know, you can give that to a five-year-old, but the intangibles. Those are the things that people either you possess or you don't. And do you see that in people who don't look like you? Because it's easy to manage somebody who reminds you of yourself. It's easy to manage somebody who likes the same things as you. But are you being fair and giving those opportunities to people that are different than yourself and actually have to lead a team? Are you actually doing that? So, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it is. And I think that that is the point when we think about affirmative action, we think about all of these things that exist to overcome systemic racism and to ensure that there's equity, right? Because it is, it's like we, and that's even from a hiring perspective. Like that's why in organizations, you have the carbon copy of the leader who hired someone who they were like, oh, this is me when I was 23. Like, And so, and some of that, no matter what race you are, no matter who you are, some of that is just an innate quality of ego in terms of leadership, right? Mm -hmm. And so we have to be aware to ensure that we're not caught up there and that there is a fair opportunity because that's the biggest thing. You know, we just announced our um, brain trust fund and so much of our thesis is creating new opportunities for black founders in beauty and wellness to receive venture mm -hmm. capital because we know less than 1%. And as I'm looking at my venture hat and I look around at all of these spaces and I'm like, well, dag, no wonder there's no mm -hmm. diversity from a fund manager perspective and it's getting better, but right. it plays into what's happening in the corporations, what's happening all over when we think about equity. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting because there's a responsibility with corporations to not only 
make sure that there is an Alicia internally who can advocate for the people and who can create these programs. But then they have a responsibility externally to make sure that the culture that they've created is now seeping into the industry and externally. And you have been leading an initiative called Texture Education Collective, and it is through the Professional Beauty Association, which I am part of the PBA. I am working with them on the 45B the tax credit. Um, And so the PBA is the largest, most inclusive national trade organization representing the professional beauty industry. And you and Deva Curl are part of the founding members of this Texture Education Collective. Can you talk about that? Yes. Um, So this is actually, this is something I'm I'm very proud of. Um, This was, we worked behind the scenes on this for a long time, over a year. And also, I think it plays into the fact that I am new to the beauty industry. So when I started at Diva Curl, I'm, you know, learning about cosmetology, my entire timeline has shifted. I'm following hairstylists, you know, cosmetology schools, all these different things. And so there was this article that was being shared and it was about Louisiana and how they changed the requirement to, uh, you know, no textured hair care in, in order to get your cosmetology license. And after I read it, I'm baffled because this is November 2021. And I'm like, I assumed cosmetology school was like, you know, your residency. You learn all of the things, you figure out what you're good at, you stay in your lane, right? If you're great, you can do it all, but you know. <laughs> so that's what I thought. And when I realized this, one, I, I think you're taken aback you're not surprised because it's like, okay, of course, here we go when we're talking about systemic racism and how this impacts, um, you know, people over the course of time. So I see this, I talked to, you know, my leader at the time, I'm like, hey, maybe we can get this going in New York. Talk to the general counsel, she connects me with, you know, someone from PBA and they're just like, yeah, we, you know, we love this, we can do this. And as a matter of fact, so Edwin Neal, who started in Louisiana, he, you know, becomes a part of it as well. So, and, you know, we have L'Oreal, we have Aveda, but we start this, you know, this texture education collective because we all realize that, you know, these things are going to continue to be systemic issues when the education once, here we go, education, going back to it, when the education piece is not changed. And so it's just, it's a nationwide initiative. It's a, a collective of all of, you know, these beauty brands coming together to realize that this needs to change and how can we support that? So all of us have our individual ways of supporting this effort, but it's it's a huge campaign. It's a necessary one. And it goes back to when specifically when we're talking about anti-racism with, you know, we're changing, you know, the policies, the practices and the beliefs. What we end up seeing are the people and the end result. What I experience is going somewhere where I cannot get my hair done. But when we peel back the layers and go a couple of steps back, the person who can't do your hair and, you know, myself who cannot get my hair done are all impacted by the same system of not this not being worthy of being learned and not having to know how to do textured hair. And so when we focus on policy and and have an impact that way, it starts to change the culture and it starts to change how we're able to interact with one another. So yeah, the Texture Education Collective, I'm thrilled to see where it's going to go, where it's going to land. And it's, it's so necessary. Oh my goodness. I literally, I have chills because as we're talking to 
Ajla and the team that's fighting for the Crown Act, Mm -hmm. to your point, we also have this massive issue of the fact that it stems from education. Mm -hmm. And so on the other side, to your point, everyone is like, why can't I get my hair done? Or, you know, we talk about um, talent on movie sets and this lack of education. When to your point, this is Mm -hmm. your residency. Mm -hmm. Like this would not happen in any other industry. Like, Mm -hmm. and so it's the impact and like, the focus on the policy and the change and that I love the professional media association and how they bring in corporate mm-hmm. partners like Diva Curl and L'Oreal and these companies, because if we can impact policy, then we can truly make change and it can go mm-hmm. deeper because mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. one state, it's two states, it's three states, but then you also have the hairstylist speaking up. Like mm-hmm. this is an impact for business. Like part mm-hmm. of the DNI is that it's the right thing to do. And then there's a business piece. Right. We talk about the billions of dollars that are left in our economy because we are not focused on diverse communities and populations. Right. And it's the same for the hair industry. You're actually cutting into the pockets of hairstylists because they didn't get trained. Some right. of them didn't know. And then the ones that are asking have to figure out how to do it. Mm-hmm. And so I just applaud you and I applaud Diva Curl for for doing it because it's going to make such an impact. Thank you. And I, and you know, it goes to show when you're when you put DNI people in these leadership roles and you allow them to do their job, this is these are the types of impacts that you can have and this while obviously proud of it and it's unique to Diva Curl in the beauty industry, However, this could happen across so many other industries. One if you if there's collaboration across brands because we need we need everybody to be on the same page with this in order to shift the industry. Um, but, you know, like I said, it's just, you know, let me come in and do my job. You know, when, you, when when I'm going back talking about the rules that you have at, you know, each individual corporation, when you're not supported, the creativity is not there to make these types of nationwide changes that can exist if you allow people to do that. And every week I share an influencer I'm checking out. And thanks to Alicia, make sure to follow the lip bar. That is T-H-E-L-I-P-B-A-R, The Lip Bar, vegan and cruelty-free, founded by Melissa Butler. And as always, I like to leave you with one thing from today's guest, and that is how will you coach the next generation of leaders to create new opportunities around equity and fairness in the workplace? How will you coach the next generation of leaders to create opportunity and fairness in the workplace? Follow, rate, and subscribe to Business of the Beat on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You don't want to miss an episode. And we're so excited to be back next week with Alicia, who will share more about her own brand, Nash and Pino. Make sure to tune in next week for part two. Business of the Beat is hosted by Kendra Bracken-Ferguson, assistant producer Jenny Salk, executive producer Kendra Bracken-Ferguson, edited by Fishmar Creative, executive producer Ken Johnson. Find the Business of the Beat podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Odyssey, Amazon Music, or where you get your podcast. And on IG at Business of the Beat. Business of the Beat is a mean old line media production. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.